Welcome to the podcast version of Sunday Miscellany, which differs from the radio version for rights reasons. We hope you enjoy the programme. The world is a small place. Degrees of separation are narrow. I once spoke with a man who claimed his great-uncle had a romantic involvement with Libby Custer, wife of the American General George Armstrong Custer. On a wet afternoon in the front room of a house in West Dublin, the man in question told me the story of his great-uncle Miles. Miles Keogh was born in County Carlow in March of 1840. As a 20-year-old, he volunteered along with over 1,000 of his countrymen to rally to the defence of Pope Pius IX against unification plans for Italy. The papal forces were eventually defeated and Keogh returned to Rome, where he was appointed a member of the Vatican Guard. He was awarded a medal for gallantry, but, as his grand-nephew explained, great-uncle Miles soon became disenchanted with the mundane duties of Rome. He became aware that a civil war was raging in America. Experienced European officers were sought by the Union Army, and in March of 1862, Keogh resigned his commission in Rome and boarded the steamer Kangaroo bound for New York City. He enlisted in the Union Army as a cavalry officer. His record as a soldier is exemplary. Praise recorded by the commanders he served with during the American Civil War is high. General George McClellan wrote that Major Keogh is one of the most superior young officers in the army and is a universal favourite with all who know him. After the war, Keogh remained in the regular United States Army. He commanded a troop of the 7th Cavalry under General Custer during the so-called Indian Wars. The young man from Carlow may have been a favourite amongst his fellow soldiers, but it seems he was also a great favourite in army social circles. It is recorded that he was a bit of a dandy, that he looked good on horseback, and how his uniform fitted him like skin on a sausage. The American historian Nathaniel Philbrick writes that Keogh, ever the dandy, wore buckskin like Custer's. He also writes of enmity between Custer and Keogh. It was observed how the famous general seemed to be jealous of his subordinate, and particularly so when it came to Keogh's friendship with Custer's wife Libby. Keogh was two inches taller than Custer. The same historian records how Miles was blessed with high cheekbones, dark hair and eyes, and an air of sad yet raffish intelligence. There is a photograph taken at a picnic in 1875 showing Custer and Kyo standing on either side of Libby. Kyo, dressed all in black, is leaning both suggestively and intimately on the back of Libby's chair, while her husband, dressed in white buckskin, looks on with his arms folded and a scowl of disapproval on his face. Still, whatever domestic disagreement or love triangle may have existed, one year later they breakfasted together before riding out of Fort Lincoln to engage with warriors of the Lakota Sioux at the infamous Battle of the Little Big Horn. Libby accompanied the men on the initial part of their excursion. She later wrote that she had a bad feeling about the venture and wished to spend one last night with her husband before he engaged in battle. As they exited the gate of the fort, 
It is ironic that the regimental band struck up the tune The Girl I Left Behind Me. The battle commenced on Sunday the 25th of June 1876. It is well documented that the engagement was an ill-judged decision by Custer. There was division and poor communication in the ranks. Custer and Kyo were separated from one another. They were vastly outnumbered by well-armed Lakota Sioux and over the two days of fighting the 7th Cavalry were wiped out. None lived. Miles Kyo, the cavalryman who sat so well in the saddle, was shot and fell from his horse, Comanche. Similar to his regimental companions, he was killed. When the battle was finished and belated reinforcements arrived, they found his horse Comanche wounded but still alive. The animal was nursed back to health and the 14-year-old gelding lived out a long and honoured retirement at the aptly named Fort Kyo in Montana. History is written by the victors and past notions of gallantry are nowadays legitimately challenged by America's First Nation. To quote the Lakota Sioux chief sitting bull, when I was a boy the Sioux owned the world. The sun rose and set on our land. Where are our lands and who owns them now? Back in West Dublin, Miles Kyo's grandnephew explained how his father visited Montana as a young man and claimed to have sat upon the famous horse Comanche. Now I ask you, does the world get any smaller than that? I'm lonesome since I crossed the hill And all the moor and valley Such heavy thoughts my heart do fill Since parting with my Sally I seek no more the fine and gay For each does but remind me How swift the hours did pass away With the girl I left behind Imagine if the future was a hundred years old. As spectator sports go, Looking on while a man from Dublin City Council climbs a ladder and unscrews a street sign from the front of a house doesn't sound like it would be up to much. But it's unexpectedly moving to watch him carefully remove the hundred-year-old green and white enamel sign from the wall. He goes to stow the sign, one of the few remaining original Clo Gaelic ones, complete with distinctive Gaelic revival flourishes, in his van. Wait, I say. It's okay. He replies, don't worry, it's only going to be restored. We'll bring it back after. No, it's not that, I say. Can I take a photo? He holds the sign up, his arms wide, the words Oscar Square in Irish and English captured between his hands, an angler showing off his catch. When he's gone, I take a second picture, the rectangle of grey unpainted space now revealed on the white wall. This is the first time daylight has touched this small part of the façade in a hundred years. A centenary is quite something for any estate. Where I live, in the Tenters, an area in Dublin 8 roughly the same size as St Stephen's Green Park, this centenary marks something else too. Ireland's first ever tenant purchase scheme. The name comes from the area's previous incarnation as a crucial part of the weaving industry. 
cloth was stretched by hand and strung out to dry on vast wooden frames. The word tenterhooks has the same origin. Imagine, at the height of the Civil War, Dublin was building social housing, making homes, communities for working families, creating opportunities for future generations. Just a few years earlier, Dublin had the worst housing in the British Isles, with half of all city dwellers living in tenements. Estimates from 1918 suggested 50,000 new houses were needed, yet only 37 were built. Alderman Tom Kelly believed that good housing was a weapon in fighting tuberculosis, and he battled for funding for the tenters. There was a selection process for new residents. A family had to be already living in the city, many came from tenements, the head of the household had to be working and there had to be a minimum of three children. 22 acres, 26 roads. One of the shortest, Cow Parlour, its name doesn't suggest a former city dairy but rather nods to its Huguenot ancestry, makes an appearance in Ulysses as Boulevard Bloom. An area was reserved for a school and a church and public space included in the form of Oscar Square Park, distinctive these days for its huge cherry blossom trees and emergency-era underground bomb shelter. Paths run from each of four gates, meeting in the centre of the park at a circular plinth with a statue and two curved benches. The design must have appeared pleasingly formal and neat on paper once. Today the grass around the centre is dotted with dog-churned bald patches. 400 houses, five rooms in each. Front gardens were for flowers, back gardens for growing produce. Plumbing for an indoor bathroom was included and each home was fitted with a single electric light. Every week the rent man set up shop in the middle of the estate. The concept of tenant purchase wasn't always understood. In the 1960s a man went over to pay his rent one Wednesday only to be told his 40 years were up. The house was his. He had never realised it but he had, week by week, brick by brick, bought the home his family lived in. A woman who moved into her house with the very first tranche of 25 tenants sought out the rent man a week later. She was confused. Where were the other family, the ones who were going to live upstairs? There is no other family, she was told. Every room is yours. The house is yours. Imagine, at a time when the present was so unsettled, care was given to the future. A new state making a commitment to its own working people. A month later, I watch the sign go back on the house, fresh and bright, and the grey rectangle disappears again. And I wonder, did a woman stand where I am and watch as it was installed a hundred years ago? And, just for a moment, did she too hold her breath and let the present fall still? November for Alan Coonahan. 
As we turn the corner where the lane divides, one track running to Summer's house and one hightailing through the empty fields, a flock of sparrows rises from its busyness like dust of the year just gone. Red haws still smoulder and there is the small but perfect miracle of a woodbine flowering in the face of winter's wind. This is November and the mountain bends against the first nightfall of sleeting, sightless snow. Times are tough. Light hardly breaks. But our days will not be always so. Nothing came out. This had been happening a lot lately. I kept losing my voice. I was reduced to whispering until I went to see an ear, nose and throat specialist who scolded me. Whispering is the very worst thing you can do. It puts a terrible strain on your vocal cords. He prescribed complete voice rest. I was 22 and I was mute on doctor's orders. I couldn't do my job. I couldn't socialise. I couldn't even complete simple tasks like shopping or buying a train ticket without a notebook and pen. I couldn't chat, which is in the top three of my favourite things to do. The ear, nose and throat specialist sent me to a speech therapist who took one look at my name on the form, this was in London, and said, Mary Cato Flanagan, convent girl? Yeah, I see a lot of you. The nuns teach you good manners but also to suppress your rage. She continued, The voice is closely linked to emotions. I can give you exercises to do to release the tension you're holding in your throat, but in my view, until you go to therapy, this is going to keep happening. I certainly didn't want to go to therapy. I didn't want to look at myself. I was afraid the reason my voice was failing was tied up with the reason I had a chaotic love life. But I needed my voice to function in the world, and so I committed to therapy. Now, talk therapy is a slow and painful process, especially when the reason you're doing it is because you can't talk. And at first, it can feel like things are getting worse, not better, because you have to unpack the junk you don't want to look at. But I persisted with it, and I knew it was helping. Still, after a while, I lamented to a friend that I just wanted someone to magically heal me. And she said, oh honey, you can't heal your soul with just psychotherapy. You should try Reiki. So I tried Reiki. I lay there while a woman ran her hands over the air a few inches above my body. And I remembered my sisters and me laughing ourselves sick when a friend of ours paid to have her aura massaged. But I felt suffused with an undeniable sense of well-being which kept me coming back. And then Reiki led to acupuncture, which took place in an alternative health centre. And there I learned there were many more healing modalities on offer. 
Soon I was dedicating more and more of my spare time to drumming circles and vision boards, yoga weekends and tantric workshops. At one stage, I told my sisters, my rebirther says that every feeling fully experienced inevitably turns to joy. And my sister Rachel said, we'll unpack the rest of that sentence in a minute, but let's start with this. You have a rebirther? But it was at a Heal Your Life workshop, based on the book by Louise Hay, that I confided to a woman that I wished I could find the thing that would mean I was fixed. And she asked me, why do you think you haven't? And I said, because if I had, I would be able to sustain a romantic relationship for more than a minute and a half. And she said, what if your life is exactly how it's supposed to be? The answer came with a clang of clarity. If I'd been granted my heart's desire when I was 22, to meet someone and fall in love and live happily ever after, I never would have had the experience of feeling serenity in the aftermath of climbing to the top of the Bobbly Gardens in Florence, or done yoga on a beach in Thailand, or hugged the baobab trees in the Okavanga Delta of Botswana. And more, I wouldn't have witnessed the courage of battered spirits persisting day after day. I could have missed meeting the fellow travellers seeking solace in sacred spaces. If I'd been granted my wish, I might never have had the time to develop what I think could be my superpower, making friends. My wild and wonderful life has grown around my ancient scars, like a pearl around a grain of sand. Beautiful, not despite it, but because of it. So I wasn't seeking anything at all when I struck up a conversation with a nun at a luggage carousel in Copenhagen Airport. And then I realised she was Sister Breege, who's world-renowned for her healing gifts. And as we were parting, she produced from under her robes a bracelet of turquoise wooden beads and said, I'm a matchmaker too, as she slipped it onto my wrist. It was a rosary bracelet and I was delighted with it although I thought it was a strange thing to say to a middle-aged woman, especially as I've worn a wedding ring for years, a trick known to female solo travellers, giving the impression of a male protector about to appear. And yet, as if by magic, not long after that, a tall, dark, handsome man took me by the hand and then took me into his arms and into his heart. And after all those gurus, shamans and voodoo priestesses it was a good old-fashioned irish nun who finally broke the spell and granted my wish and as you hear i found my voice too You might have seen this video online of a woman playing a black cello in a forest park. It's had two million views so far. The cello is lacquered. 
It matches her shiny black Doc Martens. It's cold. She has a maroon jumper on, a thick grey scarf and black fingerless gloves. The headline on the video is Playing Back Cello Suite Number 1 for an Appreciative Audience. As she plays her cello, in the background, you see two stags approaching. They're walking slowly towards her, as if drawn by the music. They're not huge, but they have long antlers. She stops playing after about 20 seconds and then smiles and turns her head slowly to look at the stags. Then the video stops abruptly. And maybe that's a good thing. Because this video reminds me of a story that the BBC published online to mark their 100th anniversary. In 1924, the BBC heard about a woman named Beatrice Harrison. She lived in London and was a renowned cellist. In good weather, Beatrice used to practice her cello in her back garden. She soon noticed that she was being accompanied by a nightingale. Not only did the nightingale sing as she played, but it also seemed to mimic her cello. The BBC came along and broadcast Beatrice and her cello and her nightingale live. It caused such a sensation that Beatrice got over 50,000 fan letters and the BBC repeated the live broadcast every spring for the next 12 years. In fact, after Beatrice Harrison left London in the 1930s, the BBC continued live broadcasts of the Nightingales and only stopped in 1942 when the microphones picked up the sound of Lancaster bombers on their way to a bombing mission in Germany. They didn't want German spies knowing the RAF's movements, so they stopped the broadcast. But the outside broadcast engineers continued recording and they recorded the same squadron returning later that night with 11 fewer bombers. That's the story of Beatrice and the Nightingales. All very charming, except for one thing. One important thing. The BBC revealed this year that on the very first broadcast, the Nightingale was fake. The 1924 programme was scheduled to last an hour, and while Beatrice sawed away on the cello for most of the hour, the Nightingale stayed stumm. It had been scared away from the garden by the BBC engineers and their equipment. Then, just a few minutes before the end of the programme, the sound of a bird singing could be heard clearly. The song of the nightingale, trilling and whistling. But it wasn't a nightingale. It was a woman. A woman named Madame Saberon. She was a professional whistler or siffleur who performed birdsong impressions on stage. The BBC had brought her along as backup. Whether the nightingale was miffed at the presence of this understudy or not, we don't know but the bird did appear for real in subsequent broadcasts and was actually recorded for an LP with Beatrice Harrison in 1927. RTE has its own BBC Nightingale fakery to admit to. In the days of film, it was sometimes cheaper to send just a camera operator out to gather pictures without a sound recordist. And then when the silent film was being broadcast, technicians would play relevant sound effects from sound effects records. So, for example, shots of a prize-giving ceremony would be accompanied with sounds of applause from a sound effects record. The most popular of these records were made by the BBC, and if you had an Irish rural scene without sound, the technician would play a BBC record labelled Woodland Sounds. The problem with this was those Woodland Sounds were recorded in Britain and included the sound of a nightingale. And nightingales are extremely rare in Ireland. 
And so the unfortunate RTE receptionists would then have to field calls from excited bird watchers to know where exactly in Ireland that rural scene with the nightingale was filmed. So, even though that charming online video of the woman playing the cello in the woods is tantalisingly short, I just don't want to see the rest of it. Just in case the longer version would show the stags carrying on ambling past her, ignoring the music and instead tucking into a big bag of deer treats just behind the camera. I think I'd rather hold on to my illusions for this one. Advent Calendar I open up the Magi window. Inside there's me and Auntie Bubala driving through a glittery village towards the starlit hills with angels singing from the radio Snow had fallen, snow on snow. Next window shows Mum's new abode old ritual of closing the curtains Mum rushing in the flaming pud with silver charms to spin the usual fun. Bubala's tutting greets the wedding bells, Mum's zutela, the wedding ring. And in the next, the carols. Tree ablaze with candles, a circle of us singing Mon beau sapin, and drifting off to Mum's le vésiné, a vie parisienne, we never knew before the war, the sense of joining with the ancestors. The final scene, a first-floor city flat, a tree that never sheds a needle, a mantelpiece with corporate cards, and Dad, still tipsy from his club, is quickly sealing all his advent windows to stay the rush of Christmas ghosts. Little Gidding, the final poem of T.S. Eliot's Four Quartets. He writes that what the dead had no speech for when living, they will be able to tell you after they are dead. The communication of the dead, he tells us, is tongued with fire beyond the language of the living. I recalled the lines when I was standing at the border of the prairie of the dead, a flat grassland, the Queen of Heaven Cemetery in Pleasant Hill, California, where my brother, Declan, lies. We had been close. 
and now I wondered if, in some way, he might speak to me. Everything holds neat in these meadows of Elysium, light spreading radiance like a presence. Bronze pots sheened, and gaudy rainbow-painted windmills, while extensive peace dreams down from the low mountains, shaded sunset rose. Those of us who have lived with demons stalking us close as consciousness, who have fought them hopefully, need companion ghosts. Like those that spirited our badlands beneath Sleevemore, back on Ackle Island, those heather rufflands, those sun-kissed cuttings, where no bell rings and skylarks soar, where we startled a flock of peewits that burst into the air, and a sparrowhawk like a flash of fire slewed away with a sharp, disappointed cry. That was an unruly world, but it was ours and beautiful, where we leapt from tump to hummock, and never dreamed diminishment, its wash, its purifying power. Whisper to me now, I said, as the delicate flowers of bog asphodel are hushed under the breeze. Breathe to me as the wind that eases down from the slopes of Mount Diablo, as it stirs here, across your resting place. We had stories still to tell, stories that now can have no ending, like our gleeful jumping into puddles, as we, free as eagles, relished the splish-splosh dance of the senses, the two of us together bound to the earth in peacock-coloured squeaking wellingtons, innocent yet of the need for bridges or the suggestions of fingerboards. For we were children, flowing as water flows, two hand-holding ego-hoops of joy, once upon a time word-tasters, truths to be sourced and sounded, to be blooded for ever between us. Now I stood alone. The cemetery was quiet, scarcely a breeze, scarcely a sigh from the leaves of the surrounding trees. I remembered the boat we made and launched out on the dangerous lake of the sweet-singing birds behind our home. We were out on the lake together once, in a stillness just like this, when we both fell silent, the oars lifted and dripping water on the surface, soft, softly, something incomprehensible holding us, fragrance breathing from the heathers, the low hills embracing, and lake water tapping gently against the timber bones of the craft. We drifted, a long, sustaining moment in unannounced communion, as childhood drew nearer to the rough rock shores and our leaning bodies grew firmer towards the tasks ahead, until we rowed again, oars raking against the rowlocks, silence persisting deep within us, swelling to a form of prayer. Here in the cemetery a small cat appeared close to me, eyed me a moment, then moved cautiously away. I looked to the hills, Earth, I thought, goes rolling slowly towards her rest, one monumental wave out of the cosmic sea, bearing on its back the glory of its flotsam, welcoming in its depths the wrecks, the jetsam. 
It bears the small things too, the Himalayas and the fjords, detritus of back gardens and high-rise offices, and cats, of course, the Persian, the Manx, the Munchkin. Wicked cats too, the meanest, mangiest cat anchorites. My brother loved a cat, one spiteful, big, self-ostracising cat. Declan adopted him, and he adopted Declan. Cat would hiss and spit against the world with a screechy sideways hop, his shabby coat standing erect on his off-black, high-arching back, should you presume, while my brother struggled years with his own demons. Worn by long-suffering, he had learned kindliness, grew skilled in ministering, was loved for his hands-on healing. The cat, whom he named Calvin, snuggled into him, and he hugged the cat close against his breast. Calvin, he said, reminded him of life's bazaars, of spitfires, pantries, crabapples, wasps. When they laid my brother in his wooden box, dressed in his pearl-blue chasuble and stole, they placed a silver-fine small crucifix against his breast, and at his side, in a Nordic urn, they left the ashes of his cat, Calvin. In the cemetery in Pleasant Hill, I had heard a purring sound as the casket-loring device laid them gently down together into eternity. Kindliness, I thought. Yes, Declan, thank you. Kindliness, I will remember. On this morning's programme, we heard Custer's Last Handshake by Joe Carney, the Tenters, Where the Future is a Hundred Years Old, was by Henrietta McCurvey. November, a poem by John McKenna. Then My Voice by Mary Kate O'Flanagan. And that was followed by The Nightingale and the Cello by Ronan Kelly. Advent, a poem by James Harper. And Calvin by John F. Dean. The music today was The Girl I Left Behind Me, sung by the 97th Regimental String Band. Dandelion's Seed was by Greenshine. Carolyn's Shibyog Shimor, played by Steve Cooney. Polignale e Todoro by the Bulgarian State Television Female Choir. Then a 1927 recording of Beatrice Harrison playing the Derry Air, accompanied by Nightingales in her garden. And lastly, In the Bleak Midwinter, performed by the London Symphony Orchestra, conducted by Christopher Warren Green. And there's a new book out that might be of interest by two of this morning's Sunday Miscellany contributors. Darkness Between Stars, Poems in Search of God by John F. Dean and James Harper is published by Irish Pages. And the programme's annual Christmas concert with the RTE Concert Orchestra is on this coming Thursday, the 1st of December at the National Concert Hall in Dublin. Special guests include writers Paul Howard, Declan Kybird, Adele Coffey and Kathleen McMahon and singers Roisin O'Reilly and Conor McKeown. It's now sold out, but if you didn't get tickets, you can always hear the programme here on RTE Radio 1. The broadcasts will go out on Sunday, the 18th of December and on Christmas morning. Sunday Miscellany's broadcast coordinator is Elaine Conlon and the producer is Sarah Binchy. You've been listening to the Sunday Miscellany podcast. For more from us, you can follow the programme on Facebook, Twitter, Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Just search for RTE Sunday Miscellany.